there. It's Paul. Uh, I'm Paul. I'm an alcoholic from Sunset Beach, actually. My home group is Lucky 13 in Sunset Beach. I better get that straight because I got a couple of people that ride in my posse with me that are here. Uh, I'm, uh, I have a home group, which is Lucky 13. I have a sponsor. His name is Mac M. He is a spiritual giant and he's here tonight. So you'll hear the truth from me. Mac is there. Uh, I have a, a sobriety date. Uh, my sobriety date is March 15th, 1990. I had my last drink, incidentally, September 21st, uh, 1989. But, you know, March 14th, I was very nervous. I was going to, had a big job the next day, the first acting job I'd had since I got sober. And, it was, and I had a little bit of a headache and I had a girlfriend that had a, a prescription for Valium. And I was like, well, I had used to have a, prescription for Valium. So I'm sure that it would be fine for me to take one. So I took this little, I don't know, remember it was a five or a 10, had to be a 10. I don't think I ever, if a five, I dropped it. I wouldn't even pick it up, but I took this little 10 grain Valium and I ate it and decided it was not a, a slip. And, uh, and for about three years, I kept that as a secret. And because it, it wasn't really a secret, it just wasn't anything to be dealt with and all. And because it was not, and, you know, because my ego would not address the fact that I, at th about three years into the deal, I realized that I had never spoken a word about that Valium to my sponsor. And at that moment, I went, it's a slip. You got to call him right away. My sponsor was this little guy named, named uh, Jerry Hunter. Jerry's passed away, but Jerry was about my size. I'm 5'2". He was maybe 5'3". He rode a full dress Harley and his feet would not touch on either side. So when you talk to Jerry, he'd go back and forth. He'd rock back and forth. And when I was new, I looked like a parrot. I mean, I was happy, joyous, and free. And you'd see the two of us trying to talk to each other and it looked like a, a railroad crossing guard. And just, you know, he would put his hands on my shoulder and he'd say, let's just Let's just get in sync. My Jerry, he was a beautiful man and a dear man. And I called him when I realized that, it, that I hadn't spoken to him and it was a slip. And I called Jerry and I said, Jerry, I have to change, I have to change my sobriety date. And he went, oh, oh, Jesus. Oh, Paulie. Oh, Jesus. Well, God damn. Well, we, we start again. What, uh, what did you do? I, I said, I took a Valium. I took one of Judy's Valium. He said, wow, God. when? I said, March 14th, 1990. And he was like, it was a long pause. And he said, you know, well, that's a hell of a 10 step. Promptly admitted you were wrong. You know, it's like, what the hell? But that's, that's when I could admit it. That's when it became a slip. And as, as I look back, and I mean, I'm, I'm talking, you know, 27 years ago, whenever I made that phone call. And I look back on it and, and I realize that that's, that's, there's a, a lot of information about, about this program right, and about me in that. The fact is that, that I have an ego that is massive and, and it continues to rise up in front of me and it has to be dealt with. But this is a process. Somebody said once that recovery is a process, not, not an event. It's a series of events. It's a series of, of oh God, Gary. Gary, you know, first of all, anybody that cries, I adopt immediately because I'm a big, you know, my nickname is Weepy Williams. 
but you spoke to me in ways you couldn't have known you were going to speak to me tonight. I needed you. I needed. I, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say what, what you said very specifically about your brother, except I've said it about mine. My brother was, I have a little brother named Mentor. He was uh, six years younger than me and about a foot taller. Uh, he was my big little brother and, and he was also a songwriter. I'm a songwriter and, and Mentor was a songwriter. And we were incredibly, uh, we loved each other like crazy, but we were, we were very competitive. And, and, and my brother was also a major, major drunk like me. And, you know, he was the kind of a guy that he, he would, you know, he would, we'd be into the, into the booze and, and a, a little outside issue from Peru that I did a lot of for a lot of years, you know, uh, cocaine was a large part of who I was, you know. Alcohol made me feel big enough to deal with the rest of the world. Cocaine made me feel like I could shoot basketball for money. And I just was, every, you know, write those songs down and put them in a drawer and write those songs down and put them in a drawer. Because as long as I was doing drugs, I was not touching anything, finding anything in my heart to share with you. It was all about be better than I was before. Let's be really clever. This will really impress them. It didn't. What impresses people that listen to music is usually honesty. And I was far from honest for so many years. But here's my little brother. My little brother was so sweet and, and we'd start drinking and tooting and he'd say to me, you know what, Paul, you're the best damn songwriter I know. You may be the best damn songwriter. You may be the best lyricist, right? And you're, yeah, I'm telling you right now, you're the best lyricist alive today. And, and he'd say that about nine times. And then he'd say, who the hell do you think you are? The best lyricist? Because you're not, you know. Jesus, what, you know, your head is out of, you know, because, you know, you're, basically that sentimental crap you write is, you know, it's like, so that's, that's, where, that's what our brother was, was like, you know. And, uh, and I got sober. And, and Menor was sweet. And, and we never talked much. Or he didn't drink around me, whatever. And then uh, I got I got sober in, in, in March 15th, 1990, and Menor got sober in 2002. So we had until he passed in, uh, in 2016, we had 14 years as sober brothers, Gary. And the difference, because I finally had a brother when he would, you know, and it's funny because he, he said to me a couple of years before he died, he said, what's your sobriety date? I said, March 15th. He said, no, that's mine. What's your sobriety date? I said, March 15th, 1990. He went, March 15th, 2002. And it went, we didn't know. And what had happened to the two of us as brothers is what happened to me before that moment with him or during those 12 years, happened to me with, with almost anybody and everybody that I met in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I felt safe. I felt connected, I felt loved, I felt useful. Useful is a big thing. You know, if I feel useful, I don't have to feel important. Important is, is dialed into my ego, you know. And when I got sober, I wanted, I wanted to be, I wanted to be that, you know, hood ornament to, to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. I mean, I just, I loved it so much. I wanted to, I wanted to, to be the, the, the poster child of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in 30 years, what I've learned is to become a, a, in, in the center of the herd, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and it's a lot less work. <laughs>
you know, but it pops up, you know, I speak a lot, you know, and, 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 and my pitch is, this is basic white bread alcoholism. I have a, a really boring story. I never came out of a blackout with a Russian arms dealer or a hooker and, you know, a, you know, a fancy hotel in Paris. You know, I, I always joked that I'd come out and, well, the joke, but it's the truth. I'd come out of a blackout in the boys department of Sears because I'd get drunk and decide I was going to buy some clothes that fit for a change. So, you know, yeah, just, you know, just, just insane. But Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a life that I couldn't have imagined. And, you know, I, 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 I know that there's, there's a, a, there's a propensity, I think, for some of us to have that gene in us where it's because it's just almost part of our physical makeup. Uh, everybody in the Williams family is drunk. So, I mean, both of my brothers had an older brother. They're both gone. Both got sober. Uh, neither one of them could, could quit smoking. If you're an, an alcoholic and you're still smoking, don't make us come to your funeral. Quit smoking if you can, please. And it's awful. I watched my brother suffer again because of his, because he couldn't breathe. He couldn't breathe, you know. Um, but but uh, what was I talking about? Where was I headed? Talking about oh, the fact that it's, it's like in our DNA. That, that both my brothers, my dad was six foot two. He, he died when he was 50, not quite 60. He drove his car into the abutment of a bridge and uh, uh, went through the windshield and died a week later. But he was, he was a happy drunk. Uh, he was a sentimental drunk. He used to get me up in the middle of the night to sing. He thought I could sing and he'd get me up and I was this tiny little guy, you know. So then, and I'd sing, I'm yours, heart and soul. I mean, all these you know, codependent anthems that I would later on be, would, would write myself, you know, all these, all these mushy love songs. And, you know, it's my specialty, mushy love songs, codependent anthems, pick me up and love me mommy songs, you know. But my dad would get me up to, he was a construction uh, superintendent and, and he built hospitals and airports and stuff like that. And jobs lasted about a year. So I went to nine different schools but by the time I was in the ninth grade, but my dad, you know, would, would, you know, would drink way into the night with his buddy, Ike McShane and get me up to sing Danny boy for and the last thing Ike McShane wanted was to hear some gnomes sing Danny boy. I mean, he just hated, he just, I mean, and, and what amazes me, and this is a nod to all the Al-Anons Al or double winners in the room. It just amazes me that when somebody's drunk, you don't see something that obvious that you're getting your kid up to have him show off for somebody that doesn't care. And boy, I got to tell you, at like six or seven or eight, sometimes you're pretty sharp. and I could tell who didn't care, you know, and it almost didn't. I mean, the balance between the dad caring and you know, this guy not caring. And it was began to get confused. So you need something bigger. I need more people to care. You know, I'm an alcoholic and not just the way I drank, but the way I act and the way I think. So that's something that has to be dealt with all the time. But my dad, I, I, I usually tell a story about my dad getting me up in the middle of the night, one night with his buddy, Ike McShane, and telling me, and he wanted to be a good dad. He said, you know what, my boy, I'm going to say, we were living in Southern Ohio. And he says, I want, I want to take you to see a professional baseball game. We're going to go to see the Cleveland Indians play baseball. I mean, just, just 
just flat out, you know what, face drawn. So we got in his car, which was a 50 Merc, like James Dean drove in, in Rebel of Better Cause. And he put me in the back and, and, uh, and he's driving, it's still dark out. It's probably four o'clock in the morning. We're driving to see the Cleveland and he's play baseball, you know, and, uh, and, uh, He's all over the room. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I just turned 80. I'm 80 years old. And I, I, I can close my eyes and I can see the, the headlines, headlights of the car. I can see the, the rain, which is like horizontal. And I can see the car going all over the road. And I remember thinking that if I concentrated hard enough, I could keep it, I could keep it on the road. I mean, it's got to be the headwaters of my magical thinking. You know, just, yeah, I, I can do this. I can do this. Yes, yeah, see, I can do this. So my dad drove through, and, and he's going, yeah, and looking back, and I'm thinking, don't, don't look at me, dad. Look at the road, you know. And, and you take a little kid, and you're scaring that much, he will retreat to magical thinking into the reality, except as, as something other than the reality of the man that's supposed to be taking care of me, my daddy is driving me in into the, the ditch next, next to the road. You know, so he's driving me to the Cleveland Indians. He's the Cleveland Indians plays baseball and he drove to the wrong city. He drove to Cincinnati. Said, Cleveland Indians don't play in Cincinnati, you know. So, so we get to the ballpark and the ballpark is empty. And he's sitting there with his buddy where they're passing the bottle and the, you know, the paper sack back and forth. And he finally gets up and he walks to the window and he looks and he realizes what he's done. And, and I see that again. He was wearing brown suit pants, slippers, not shoes, slippers, and what we would now call a wife beater to go to the baseball game, a sleeveless T-shirt. You know, and, uh, and I watched that slump, that just that, that alcoholic slump. And he came back to the car and he said, well, there's not going to be a baseball game. There's a, there's not going to be a ball game, but it's the thought that counts. And I got to tell you, I heard that it's the thought that counts. And I was like, I can do that. Son of a bitch. I can, I mean, I didn't think son of a bitch then, but I do now. It was that sort of, I can, I get it. Those are the rules. I can be thoughty. And for 49 years, I was the thoughtiest little creature you ever met. I thought about showing up for work on time. I thought about keeping promises. I thought about you know, I thought about being honest and, and, and not lying. And, and, and I, and I wasn't, I mean, I, I didn't vote really till I got sober. I mean, maybe a couple of times, but well, I sure had opinions on, on who you voted for and shared them all the time. So uh, my dad comes back and he says that, says that to me. And, and I never heard, never heard or believed anything different until, until I found the, the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you told me that it didn't matter. You know, it, it, the thought was not the main thing. It wasn't even my feelings. You know, I can't, I can't, I can't get in touch with my feelings. You know, stay sober long enough. Your feelings will get in touch with you is what Jerry said. But what you said to me is what matters is how you act, your actions, you're responsible for your actions. You know, Jerry Hunter was my sponsor, had something, lived by something that, that I think is, is his, the bumper sticker of his program. He would say to me and he would say to how many, many people, I heard him say it again and again. He'd ask me, how are you treating the world today, Paulie? How are you treating the world today? 
And the first time he did that, I was like, you know, do I mean, how's the world trading me? And he said, no, 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 not at all. Uh, I don't really give a rat's ass how they're treated. Well, the fact is I do because I love you. You know, I love you, Paulie. So, but, I, but I can't really do anything about the world. But I'll tell you something. I can promise you this. If you are vigilant about the way that you treat your fellow man and people in the rest of the world, everything in your life will get better. And he was right. He was right. Uh, there's another part of my story that's, that's important to that. And it was interesting to hear Gary talk about feeling different. I felt different. I felt I was different, but didn't feel different about that. I felt different from a different place. When I was about seven years old, I, I, I was tiny. I could literally run under coffee tables. I looked like, you know, a, a wind-up doll. You know, Disney made me. Uh, and, and my dad was like, you know, should he be able to, you know, to, to run under coffee? Table? This is the, well, there's something wrong here. So my mom, he had my mom take me to the doctor. I went to a, we were living in Albuquerque and I went to a country doctor and he looked at me and he didn't know anything about hormones or, or, or you know, I, I, I mean, I, he, I think he made a, just an educated guess. He said, I know how to make this kid grow. Let's give him male hormone. So they gave me male hormone when I was about seven, eight, Nine, somewhere, maybe eight, maybe nine. And uh, and what and it was the wrong thing to do because when when you when you give somebody male hormones, it kicks them into early puberty and the bones begin to close off. So here I am, this like nine year old or whatever, and and uh, and it slowed down my growing, but it kicked me into puberty. So all of a sudden, I have no interest in my toy chest, but my aunt in this chest is something. I'm finding fascinating and I keep dropping things for her to pick them up and my dad notices this and my mom notices this and they go to the doctor and they go well I've got a nine-year-old with a woody you need to do well, I don't think she said that but it was basically you've got you've got to do something so they stop the shots you know and and it's it's interesting because it screwed up my body clock so I didn't hit puberty till I was like 22 you know that means that when, when my dad died and I was 13, I was shipped to California to live with an aunt and uncle, go to Woodrow Wilson High School in Long Beach when I'm like four foot, I was four six when I graduated. I, I took a spurt after that up to five two. That's my idea of a spurt. <laughs> so, but I'm here I am in the shower with guys and everybody in California is, first of all, they're all six two, they're all tan. What color I have, I got from the light in my refrigerator, you know. Although I look especially pink tonight, it's the lighting in this room. It's like, you know, and that's what my body looked like you know, in the shower, looked like my body was made out of cantaloupe, you know, it's just, it was awful. It was awful. My first prayer was, God, I don't care how big you make me, but cover me with fur, cover me with fur. I want to look like a man. I want to look like everybody else. And is that why I felt different? No. I felt different because, you know, I, I, I was a place below what normal felt like. And any success that I had, including any fame that I had, and I got I had an amazing career as a songwriter. I've had an amazing life, an amazing life. But anything that I had that was, you know, and I mean, uh, I'm a lot of, you know, I started singing and, and, and uh, you know, writing songs and then performing and, and doing, you know, bad movies and any television show I could, I could get them to put, a, put you know, put me on. 
but anything that at the peak of my career, what I felt was close to normal. What I felt was not like a big shot, but what I felt like now I can go out and sit down next to these other guys on the, on the tube and feel like normal, you know, and I, none of this was identified in the, in the moment. None of this was, you know, in the moment when I, when I was still drinking at 187 pounds at my peak, you know, 130 pounds now, 187, you know, in the moment, what I was thinking about was, you know, was getting more cocaine, having enough alcohol and, and, uh, you know, and companionship in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have learned to work well with, you know, with my superiors. I have learned to be friendly with my superiors, meaning I can have non-romantic relationships with women. Because when I was this little, little guy and loaded out of my gun, I, I thought, well, I am a stud muffin. You know, I am a stud muffin and I, and I must, and I, and I know she wants to be with me. I was a mess. Uh, it's a progressive disease. It's a progressive disease. So I didn't start out a total mess. You know, I started out doing good work and then it all kind of fell apart and I turned into my dad. I mean, I got married. I had, had two beautiful kids. I left my wife and children uh, when they were very small for a 22 year old psych major when I was 46. And uh, I became a weekend dad. And I remember doing exactly to my with my kids what my dad did with me. Driving up to, to, I had a home in, in, in Montecito, and I go up to Montecito and I pick up my kids and bring them back to my house in, in West Hollywood. And I, and I couldn't make it from West Hollywood to, uh, to, to, Monterey, to Montecito or Montecito to, to West Hollywood without having a drink and a toot. So I would make my kids look away. I would say, you know, there's, you know, is that cow on fire, you know, or, you know, they make those wires out of actual living snakes, anything to get my kids to look away, you know, is that cow on fire? I mean, my daughter probably at some point wound up in a therapist's office going, why am I dreaming about burning cows? You know, she was maybe four, three. But the thing that was important about this young lady is that in the, the worst of my disease, it's, you know, when I was just, just, living to, you know, if I would wake up with a two gram bottle in my hand. Uh, I just, I, I mean, these, these days, if, if things begin to get a little out of hand and I start trying to control things, I'll wake up in the morning and my right hand will hurt. And it's like a, it's, it's like a, just a little physical reminder of where you're going right now, Paulie, you need to deal with that. You need to deal with, with your spiritual life. Uh, but what was important about this young lady who I would, I really loved, I really loved her. Uh, I mean, I, th I think, I, th I think I did, you know, I, I know I put my need on her face. My, the, the love that I didn't get at some point was, was right there. And, and, uh, you know, I, I joked that the two of us made one healthy person, her, you know, she was just, and she, she had the courage to, to turn to me and say, you know what? I love you too much to watch you die, so I'm leaving. And I was like, that's amazing. I was just thinking, 
I was just thinking of going to rehab, you know, and it's like, yeah, I wasn't going to go to rehab. I wasn't thinking of going to rehab, but I was also not going to handle being alone. You know, I needed, you know, I needed that support of not even a, a, a relationship that is, that is, you know, that is an exchange of ideas or, or, or anything close to healthy. I just needed, she was, up, I needed to know she was upstairs when I was downstairs, and that I I could go up there and all. It's just it's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. Um, I went to I, I went to a place called New Beginning. Or New Beginning before that I went to a place called Shikshadel in Santa Barbara, which is aversion therapy. They they give you they give you a shot to make you really sick, and then you drink all the booze you can can handle. And you're vomiting, and it's awful. You sit in a in a chair with a bowl on it. And then they take that that came out of you and put it put it in a, a towel and a soak a towel in it, put it around your neck, and put you in a room for three hours. And the next day, they give you sodium pentothal and ask you if you want a drink. And I would, you know, I would go in there, and they they said we're a little worried about you, Mr. Williams, because you're always early for the sodium pentothal because I've I loved it. I loved it. I loved falling out of myself. I loved that, you know, not having to deal with the world. Just, you know, medicate, medicate, massive medication. And I self-medicated to the end. But I came out of there and for seven months I had sidriety. I sponsored a wonderful guy named Wes in, in Denver and he invented the word sidriety and I had sidriety. I had no spiritual life, no sponsor. I was not going to AA meetings. It was the last thing I needed is AA. And I went to uh, I went to Jamaica to work on a project. And uh, the uh, I was it was a beautiful home in, in Ocho Rios. And I went there. I was supposed to be working on this musical. And instead, I went. All I wanted was to write one more hit song. I knew if I if I wrote one more hit, everything would come back. It would be the beginning of the train. It would lead to me being somebody again. And uh, so I stayed up most of the night and I wrote a song that I thought was a smash. I took my place beside you, girl. I don't remember the words, I remember the melody. I took my place beside, I got up the next morning, about two, the next morning, got up about two in the afternoon, went out, sat by the pool, picked up the tape recorder and, and listened to what I'd recorded and what I'd written the night before. And I had rewritten O Little Town of Bethlehem. I took my place beside you. I mean, it's, I don't remember the words, but that's exactly what I wrote. I took O Little Town of Bethlehem. I still, I was like, Jesus, Jesus. I mean, Jesus, I'm sorry. You don't want to steal from the big amigo, you know? So, so at that moment, a guy with a white butler with a white jacket and a tray in the ice, and the Coke and everything came by and he said, Mr. Williams, would you like something to drink? Perhaps a rum and Coke? I said, I want one light rum and Coke, one rum and Coke. I'm the Paul Williams. I, I've had massive success, great willpower. I can handle one rum and Coke. So two o'clock in the afternoon, I had one rum and Coke. At two o'clock in the morning, I was at Bob Marley's grave explaining reggae to a lot of black people I didn't know. Just, just, I mean, I know it took me about an hour to find cocaine. Uh, I was, I was 
I was gone. I was gone and lying through my teeth. I know nothing about reggae. I mean, I, have, I couldn't spell it if I had to right now. Why am I sitting there? You know, it's like, and it, there's some, some place inside me that when you add alcohol and other drugs, that, that I decide that, you know, that, that I need to know whatever you're asking me. I need to have the answer. There's, you know, I need to know, you're supposed to know this stuff. And if I don't, I would just lie. Turns out I'm not a pilot. I found out when I got sober, you know, I'd been telling people I was a pilot for years. And I got to the point, I believed it. I believed it. And it's, and, and it's still there. You walk up to me, let me get a name out of here. Gene Redondo, Gene from Redondo, Gene Redondo. Somebody walks over to me and they says, yeah, hey, listen, you're in the music business. You must know Gene Redondo. Uh, he's, uh, you, you know Gene Redondo, you're in the business. And my head's going up and down like, of course I know Gene Redondo, for Christ's sakes. You know, I'm the, I mean, I've been in the business for, and I have no idea who Gene Redondo is, you know. So eventually my recovery catches up with my, you know, little doggy in the back of the window, bouncing up and down head. And I say, no, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know who that is. And the guy will go, well, wow, that's interesting. You know, where the head thing is. Like, well, you probably wouldn't. Gene is, uh, he's my wife's cousin. He wants to be in the music. He wants to actually score movies, but they, I don't think he's doing, doing well, you know, but, but why, what, what part of me, what part of me could not just sit there and say, I don't know. It's, I believe it is totally the perfect example of a continuing piece of the bondage of self. I think it's absolutely the bondage of self. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to just really quickly jump ahead to where I see where I am right now, uh, to, to what happened before I got sober. And I went to, and it's the best part of my story. It's the best part of my story. Uh, you know, I went back after, after, um, you know, after the incident in, in Jamaica and the, the girl was gone, uh, I was, you know, it was just me peeking out the Venetian blinds at three in the morning, looking for the tree police. That became my job, you know. Um, and uh, eventually, I went to Oklahoma City to do a concert. And uh, a concert in the afternoon. I'd been up like three days and nights. Uh, I think I was taking a little bit of abuse, trying to convince the girl that had left to come back because, see, I'm taking abuse. I probably hadn't slept in three days or nights, loaded on cocaine and, and, and alcohol and vodka, Stolichnaya. Used to put it in a pop-off bottle because a pop-off bottle was flat. I could put it under the seat of my car. But I went to Oklahoma and I, and I no sleep the night before over the gig, of course. And so about one o'clock in the afternoon, the, the, the promoter came to the hotel to pick me up and take me to the university where I was performing. And we're walking down the hall having a conversation as normal as normal. And all of a sudden he says, and he described it later, he said, it looked like somebody took you by the, the seat of the pants and, and the nap of your neck and threw you higher than your own head uh, against the wall. And I was beat up by a monster that nobody could see but me for probably 40 minutes. I was thrown down escalator stairs in the hotel, only there was no escalator in the hotel. That by God, those stairs were moving for me. 
Uh, he took me back to my band and in the car, I could see this little monster with teeth, you know, with the, the sharp teeth and he was biting me on the neck and twisting my ears. And I was just, you know, I was gone. I mean, I was just nuts. He did the show the next day and I told the audience that I had a reaction to my meds and that was the truth because my meds were how I was dealing with life. Alcohol worked for me and then it didn't work for me. And then, and then it just got worse and worse and worse. Yeah, uh, you know, in a, in a Zoom, one of the first Zoom meetings that I went to and that I, that I spoke at, uh, somebody in one of the wonderful squares, one of the spiritual giants in the squares said to me, you know, he said, I'll never forget years ago, as I saw you, I heard you speak and you talked about, about the suicide note. And I was like, the suicide note. And I remembered, and I hadn't thought of it in years. But what he was talking about was I had shared in an earlier pitch that I would wake up in the morning with my gun out and a suicide note next to it. And I was not depressed. I had no memory of being depressed or in that blackout. That's where I went. And it's a great reminder for all of us that alcohol is a depressant. And if you are mildly depressed and you start drinking, you know, it's, it's, you know, but what a gift to remember that. And it, it was, you know, it was a piece of, you know, and, and you'd think that you'd never forget that. It's been 30 years and there are, there's some Polaroids of my old behavior that have faded, you know. So to have that come back to me was just a, a huge gift. Uh, I went back to L.A. after that, and, and about a week or 10 days later, in a blackout, I called a doctor, and I said I wanted to uh, I wanted to get sober. He called me. It was a Friday night. On Saturday morning, he called me. I said, I found, I found a place for you. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you called me yesterday and said you wanted to get sober. And I said, somebody's been using my body again. There's just, you know. And then I had that moment, you know, that that precious, amazing moment when, you know, when I heard somebody using my mouth saying, yeah, it's time. I don't want to, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't drive with my kids loaded in the car. I can't, you know, I can't send my manager to have creative meetings for me because I, I'm shaking too bad to get the car started to get the key in the, in the, the, it was really, really amazing that in a blackout, I called that guy. So, so I went to treatment and, and I loved it. I mean, I just, I walked in the room, I, I, you know, I, I, the other guys in the, in the hospital, new beginnings in, in Century City, it's not there anymore. And all I wanted to do was be, that was, I had found my family. I had found it and it was a wonderful sense of, I wanted to do everything, make the coffee and do, I mean, everything. And, uh, and then the voice of my addiction started jabbering at me. And my voice, that, that voice, I, there's a voice in my recovery, which is thank you, God, and, and pure gratitude, like Gary was talking about. And then there's the voice of, of my addiction. And my addiction said, they got it. You don't. Why waste your time? Let's get out of here. Let's get out. Let's go get laid. Let's go whatever. And I went, no. 
I cannot do this. And I prayed about it for the first time in my life. And basically I demanded that God let me see what I hadn't seen that they had seen, because I can't go back to the life I had before. I need to stay here and I need to do this. And this is what I want. So you've got to show me something that I've never seen. And I grabbed a, a blank piece of paper. I thought, I thought it was blank. And I love this saying this. It was to write, write a, 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 basically a drug history. But I picked it up and because of the light shining through the paper, I saw there was something written on the other side. And I turned it over and I saw for the first time in my, my life the words, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulty that victories over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Amen. And it's, you know, that's the bondage of self. And, and I, and I, and it was like I could look at, I could, in that moment, I could, I could look at the fact that I had been saying, I, I never turned out another human being until then and said, I, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm dying and you've got to help me. You've got to help me. And that's, that's the mantra. That's the, that's the open sesame for our lives. When we say that, and I spoke last night, I started crying talking about that because it, it was a buddy of mine named Steve A. It was in, the, in the, the, one of the squares. Steve cries all the time, Gary. There's a lot of us that cry. The more, the soberer you get sometimes to cry. And you, you, it's just amazing. But, but, but for the first time in my life, you know, I, I said those magic words. I said those magic words. I don't know what I'm doing. And I went in and I, and I fell in love with the deal. You know, the first time I went to an AA meeting, I said that from, re, from rehab, they took us to a meeting where everybody from the rehab set up where the, the, the choir is up in the, or look, overlooking the, the rest of the church. At the end of the meeting, I stood up and said, you know, I'd like to just say something on behalf of all of us from rehab. We are so grateful that somebody yelled, sit down which I think is what, you know, as, as my friend Kelly points out, that in chapter seven, there's nothing in there that says that that's the way you treat a newcomer. I think it's what I needed. Sometimes we get what we need. And I think it's what I needed. I wanted to be the poster child for ASCAP, you know, for ASCAP, for Alcoholics Anonymous. But ASCAP, wow, work stuff sneaks in. Wanted to be their poster child too. But I wanted, I wanted it. I just, I loved it. I wanted it. I wanted my whole, I went to UCLA and got my certification as a drug and alcohol counselor. No alcohol, no alcoholic ever did that. I don't imagine. We all, we all think we're going to, we're all, we're all going to go. I, it's one, it's, it's when I entered the full tilt poly along with period of my life, touch the hem and I will strike you sober. You know, it's like, I wanted to give it away. We, I got it. We get to keep the miracle by giving it away. So here's what happened to my life. It got better and better. Uh, I wrote one musical. I wrote a, a Muppet Christmas Carol. I wrote the song for, and then I lost. I said, you know what? If I ever fall in love with music again, I'll start writing. But I just, I, I haven't chased anything since then. I haven't chased anything in the way of work or writing or anything. And it's so much of it has come to me at 10 years. Ten years sober, I went to Nashville 
to write some more unhealthy songs. And uh, I was asked to speak at the church. Excuse me, I was asked to speak at the jail. So any of you, H and I is fantastic. Instant useful, instant useful, you know, and, and even a, just a basic 12 step call, you walk out of there. I, how many of us have walked out of a 12 step call going, we were really good in there, you know? Well, we were, that was, yeah, we carried that message. That was a well carried message, you know, it's like, you know, and it feels so remarkable. It feels holy to be able to, to enthusiastically endorse something that you totally believe in that saved your life, you know? So I've been in the jail and I'm like, I go back to my hotel with the lobby of my hotel is full of guys with badges on and where they're from and, and their names and all. And I go make my way through this crowded lobby. I go up to my room and I'm walking down the hall feeling like a combination of Jiminy Cricket and Gandhi. You know, I'm just all right. I, I carry the message and my magnetic key does not work. And I am like son of a it's a quick trip from Gandhi to Himmler for me. I'm just like, God. and I go downstairs, but I've learned restraint of pen and tongue in the rooms of Alcoholic, Alcoholics Anonymous and from my sponsor, Matt, who makes me act like a grateful adult, you know, when I'm not acting that way. So I go down to this guy and the kid behind the desk. I make my way through the crowd and I say to him, look, I know it's not your fault. I know it's not your fault. But for three nights in a row, I've had to walk through this crowd. Why should I have to do that? At that point, somebody taps me on the shoulder. And I turn around, and there's a guy there with us, says, Gary, Oklahoma City. He said, I don't want to bother you. I just wanted to say hi. I booked you like 10 years ago. And I was like, oh, my God. Are you the guy when I, you know, when I did my Linda Blair and the exorcist, you know, lick me, lick me. Yeah. You know, was that, he said, yeah, that was, that was me. And I went, oh my God. Well, I'm 10 years sober and I was UCLA and I, was, I just spoke at the jail and it's just blah, blah, Polly this, blah, blah, Polly that. I just was on a tirade about how wonderful I was. And he said, yeah, I heard in the rooms you were sober. And I went, wow, are you a friend of Bill? He said, yeah, yeah. And he reached in his pocket and he pulled out a chip for 17 years. And I did the math and I was like, wow, you were seven years so sober when that happened. He said, yes, I was. I said, what'd you think? He said, oh, Paul, he calls me Paulie now. I'm sure at the time he said, Paul, so you were, yeah, we, I was so afraid for you. You looked like you were going to die. And I said, yeah, I was really, I was really bad, wasn't I? One, probably one of the worst. And I said, what'd you do? He said, I called my sponsor. I said, of course you did. What did your sponsor tell you to do? He said, I'll tell you exactly what we did. We hung up and started calling alcoholics in Oklahoma City. We put together a prayer circle for you. And, you know, my entire sober life, I have said again and again and again, it's all a gift. It's all a gift. I am Paul. It's all a gift, Williams. But the fact is, I don't think I believed it. 
And at that moment, I mean, I, I was like, you know what? I, I speak a lot. I've sponsored a bunch of guys through the years. You know, I carry the message. You know, I'm open about my recovery. I honor the tra traditions and don't mention Alcoholics Anonymous. I have walked right down the center of this. There's a part of me that felt like I had worked for it. And at that moment, when Gary said that to me, it was clear that this has all been a gift for each and every one of us. And when I go to my home group and I sit down in, in, the, in that circle and, and, and I'm the, this pissy little guy that shows up, you know, like, you know, all rise for judgmental, taking everybody's inventory. And I slowly but surely, I start hearing Prue and some of the people at my meeting, you know, are telling and it's just, you know, I kind of take a deep breath and I get back in my own body and I get still. And I'm just, I'm here. I'm alive and it's a fucking miracle. And you did that. You brought that to me. And you know, I'm sitting in that circle and, and somebody will come, you know, I, I, I always call him Steve, but I just remember the very specific of this one guy. His name was not Steve, but this one guy coming to the meeting and he was sitting there and he was kind of twitching and he said, you know, uh, Steve, I got five years, haven't been to this meeting in a long time, but, uh, but uh, things are really good. The job's, the job's really good. And, and uh, the wife is good. And, and you watch it, it's like my dad's shoulders collapsing. I'm watching Steve collapse like my dad did. And eventually he says, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I, had, I think I had a drink after midnight. I don't think I even have today. Everything changes in that circle. Everything changes because it's, it's, it's the, the horror of this moment in this guy's life where he's been lying for God knows how long. At this moment, he, sitting across from me and the rest of us, he chooses to tell us the truth. And the, when it's just as bad and as embarrassing and whatever, he has this. I mean, we are honored with that, him telling us the truth. He has the courage to step forward and say, you know what, I've been drinking. I don't know what I mean. It's, and it's abs it's a holy moment. I wish I could capture it. I'd, I'd spray it all over the nation, especially in Washington, D.C. It's absolutely just, it's the, you know, and, it, and it's the, it's the, it's what we, what, it, it's the open sesame for us alcoholics, because that's how I got here. I got here when I did that, and now I get to sit on the other side, and all of us here, here you know, to some degree, I think we all did that, and then we get to sit on the other side of it and experience that, and that's just, you know, that's the, that's the elegance of kindness. That's the elegance of kindness that you bring that, you bring you know, yourself at that place to me, and you, sh and you share who you are, and, and the crustiest old timer in the back of the room is right there and wants to help. It's like, wow. And it started in 1935, one alcoholic talking to another before, five years before I was born. It's as good as civilization has ever gotten, I think. I think it's as good as we've ever gotten. You know, the guy that wrote The, the Road Less Traveled in the second, second version, I can't remember his name, M. Scott Peck. M. Scott Peck said that the most important event of the 20th century was the creation of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, because it was it, it took this spiritual awakening and this process to, to a self-help level, you know, and it's and it's remarkable. OK, 
Kelly has a son named Sean. And Sean sent me something that, that I've been, I've been, I just am fascinated by that I think is the perfect thing, the way to close. And, and it's, he sent me this article about Margaret Mead. And Margaret Mead in, is, is, you know, uh, uh, you know the, uh, what's the word? I'm having a senior moment. They, they, they're not the philanthropist, the, anyway, an expert on, 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 on the process of man. I'll remember in the middle of the night, I'll sit up in bed and say the name, say the word. But she I was teaching a class and, and one of her students reached out to her and said, uh, Ms. Mead, uh, what do you think was, what's the first sign of civilization that you, that you ever saw? And she thought for a minute and she said, the healed femur, a healed femur. And the kid was like, femur, that's a bone, right? And I mean, he thought she would probably say, you know, a bowl or a tool or, or, uh, or maybe a weapon. But she said, no, no, the, the, the healed femur. And she explained that the femur is the longest bone in, in the human body. It connects the knee and the hip. I had mine replaced, incidentally, the hip. Um, but it's the longest bone. And in the animal world, if you broke your femur, you, you became somebody's lunch. You were prey. Your life was over. So it takes, they found a healed femur. We know that it takes about 15 weeks for the, the broken bone of that size to heal. And what that means is, is that for 15 weeks, somebody, either a person or a group of people, took this person and moved them to a safe place and brought them food and brought them water and cared for them. It's, that was the beginning of civilization when this kindness, what I call the elegance of kindness, was exhibited to this person and they healed. That's Alcoholics Anonymous to me. That's what, that's what makes Gary cry. That's, what, that's why Gene is here. You know, you know, congratulations, Gene. Gene is here, you know, you know embracing a, 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 a beginning of, of learning and, and and already pair sharing it already. What I, what I heard him say already was part of my day to day that just solidifies what I know to be true is that this is magic. This is magic. I love Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. I was all an anthropologist. You see, there's, there's a 12 second delay <laughs> to get the word anthropologist. I'm so proud of myself. I'm looking a little pink, but what the hell? I love you all. Thank you. Thank you for tonight. This is this is really a pleasure. Thank you, Paige. Thank you for asking me. That's what I've got.